0: It is Friday, the 9th of August, 2019. My name is Jeremy Medlin, and welcome to episode 52 of the Stock Market Movers podcast. Just a quick reminder that nothing that I say today should be considered financial advice, and if you're looking for financial advice, I recommend that you speak to an authorised financial advisor. So just before we get into the main content for the episode, I'm just going to do some off-the-cuff stuff about what's happened in the markets in the last week or so. And what's happened in the markets, you know, you've you've had Donald Trump tweeting, obviously, it's nothing unusual, but more has been some reaction to the interest rate decreases in the United States, and everyone else around the world seems to be jumping on that bandwagon and following up with their own interest rate decreases as well. As As you know, in the, in the past, I, I, I've i said that I find interest rates virtually impossible to predict, um, and it seems the rest of the market is, feels the same way, because I guess if you think about the narrative on interest rates throughout the year, I remember back in December and January, the narrative was that interest rates were definitely increasing. Then it was, it is interest rates are going to decrease and then they, they got, they got cut back a little bit and, and then it was, or now maybe that, that was a one and done and we're going to get back to increasing. So figuring out what, what happens there is, is, is pretty difficult. Um, Obviously, typically, interest rate decreases are good for stocks. I think what you what you saw in the markets was the pricing in of that happening. It was a typical buy the rumor, sell the news type situation. And after it happened, the stocks pulled back a bit. Um, It is an interesting one, the interest rate thing. I mean, we, we're we getting pretty low. Um, I guess the concern for me regarding the interest rates is that, you know, the economy has slowed down. You, you, there's no doubt about that but it's not like we're in a recession or anything like that. So I guess my concern is if we did get to a situation where something did, something major happened to the economy, then the Reserve Bank might not have any strings left in its bow in terms of levers it can pull because we're already at 1% or whatever we are. So I guess that's my concern. I suppose the second thing is that what we did seem to be reactionary to what happened in the United States and then the other countries that followed suit. So I guess if we're going to be reactionary about things, I guess the worry is what would happen if the United States started significantly increasing the interest rates. And then where would we go for there? Would we, would we, would we be forced to be reactionary as well? So those are some some concerns. But as I said, I don't think too much about interest rates. So for today's episode, we're doing an interview, really interesting interview, I hope you enjoy it, is with the CEO of a company called EverEdge Global. Um, They are a company that's based in New Zealand. I interview the chairman and CEO, Paul Adams. Um, What they specialize in is the... Is basically anything related to business and intangible assets. So they specialize in, in value intangible assets, they specialize in just, just anything to do with intangible assets. So the conversation we have is purely focused on intangible assets. So and we define intangible assets, we give examples of intangible assets. Paul talks about how to value intangible assets, the different ways to look at the valuation of intangible assets, intangible assets. It's a very, very interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy it and we'll we'll pick up we'll we'll pick up from where we kicked off the other day. Right, so I'm sitting here with Paul Adams the CEO of Everedge which is a company in Auckland that specialises in the valuation of intangible assets. So I'm just going to start Paul by reading a quote from your website Um, and it goes, in 1975 intangible assets accounted for 17% of company value, today it's 87%. So I guess if you could start off by explaining to people what an intangible asset is and then we can go from there.
1: Absolutely. So intangible assets, um, I like I put it in a very simple way. Uh, intangible assets are all the assets in a business you can't drop on your foot. Right? So those includes the things that people typically think of, such as um, patents and trademarks. But they also extend into things like data, content, brands, trade secrets, confidential information, know-how, regulatory approvals, um, you know, plant variety rights, design rights, all of those kind of things. And what's really interesting about intangible assets is that they are now most of the value of most companies. Um, So as as the quote says, in 2015, they were 87% of the value of the entire S&P 500 was in intangible assets. Interestingly enough, if you take the S&P 500's value and you strip out real estate, the real estate assets, then that figure uh, rises. Of intangible asset value, rises to about ninety six percent. Right. If you look at the top five companies by market cap globally, uh, it's about ninety eight point five, ninety eight point six percent. So you're talking companies like Apple, Facebook, Google. Exactly. Yeah. But basically, all of their value is in intangible assets. If you look at, say, your average startup. They're basically all intangible, right? And so you've got these super hyper valuable intangible assets that are sitting there. Now, what's also really interesting is that this wasn't always the case. If you went back to 1975, for example, 40 years, then intangible assets accounted for uh, barely 17% of company value. So over that 40 year period, we've had literally a 70% shift in the market from a concentration on tangible assets, things like cars trucks, planes, ships, plant equipment, real mm. estate, to 40 years later, virtually all value is now in these intangible assets.
0: So that might be a bit hard for some people to get their head around because most people are, are dealing with the tangible assets day to day. So what what would you say, like, say like Qantas, for example, which would have all the aircraft and, yep. and the planes and everything like that. So there's obviously still a, a big tangible asset component in there. So how how does that play out the relationship between tangible and intangible assets. Yeah,
1: so yeah, Qantas is actually a really interesting example because um, Or in New Zealand. for Yeah, well the reason why Qantas is an interesting example is because um, in 2015, I think it was, Qantas had the value of its data in its loyalty program valued at $4.5 billion. Right, and Qantas's is,
0: market cap is about $9, $10 billion. Exactly, so yeah.
1: half the value of the airline is yeah. just in the data. And if you look at their margins that they earn off their loyalty program, they make four times the margin on the loyalty program data monetization than they do flying people around the world. Mm. So they are actually a lot more about data and all those other intangible assets than they are actually around moving people around the world. Right. And, and that's the case. What's really interesting about intangibles is that's the case for virtually all companies. And even companies that look really big and heavy and tangible actually turn out to be about their intangible assets. So the example I always give is a, um, is a steel mill. Right? Steel mill's are the most big, heavy, tangible thing you can imagine, you know, you drop things in there, it hurts, it lands on your foot. Lots of people in blue overalls, sparks, etc. Mm. Very tangible. Now, imagine I gave you a steel mill. So here you go, have a steel mill, it's free. But the catch is you don't get to keep any of the intangible assets. So you don't get to keep the, for example, the industrial know-how, right, how to run the mill. You don't get to keep the um, customer data. You don't get to keep the regulatory approvals that enable you to run the mill. You don't get the software that runs any of the processes. You don't get the systems, the processes, the confidential information. You don't get the brand, customer relationships, customer data, supplier relationships, supplier data, all of those things. Mm. Very quickly becomes apparent. You can't run the mill, right? And what that means, in essence, is that the real value in the mill is the ability to run it safely and efficiently, and all of that is based in the intangible assets, which means what generates the mill's value, what generates its margins, its revenue, all of those things Mm -hmm. are the intangibles. And the assets themselves, regardless of what any accountant tells you, are actually liabilities the yep. tangible assets the mill itself the physical buildings and everything else are liabilities the real value in the mill are the intangible assets but
0: what h- how would it work in this situation because if you didn't have the mill itself you wouldn't have the ta- intangible assets right
1: well yes to and to a certain degree or? yes yes and no because those intangible assets are actually far more flexible and movable and transferable than the mill itself i can't pick the mill up and transfer it i can pick up many of those intangible assets mm. and move them Right. And this is one of the this is one of the things the things don't exist in isolation, but intangible assets are typically far easier to move than tangible ones. And that, by the way, and this is a much bigger conversation off of the side, is one of the reasons why uh, governments are increasingly facing big problems with their tax base, because, uh, you know, dirty little secret, 60 percent of all inter- international trade is actually an in intra-company Transfer pricing arrangements, right? So, all of the trade we see happening around the world, you know, whatever it is, you say it's $100 trillion, $60 trillion of that is actually in intra transfer pricing arrangements underpinned by intangible assets. And by that,
0: so just, I might not understand you correctly, by that do you mean Facebook selling to Facebook in New Zealand or? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah.
1: Right, precisely. And what that is all ultimately about is about essentially forum shopping for the lowest tax rate tax rate, right? And, that, and the only reason that's possible is because of this tremendous shift in value in from tangibles to intangibles, right? Because 40 years ago, when all the value was in the tangible assets, you couldn't pick up the factory and move it around, right? Yep. Whereas now, with the rise of the Googles, the Facebooks, Apples of the world, they can move their brand, they can move their know-how, their trade secrets, confidential information, data, wherever they want in the world. And park it there, <clears throat> and that means that is a tremendous problem for uh for tax authorities for a start, but it has big knock on implications right throughout the economy but the, the key point is you know you follow the money, the values ended up in the intangible assets yeah.
0: and when you say governments might have a problem does does that do you mean in the sense you hear in the news about say Facebook, use as an example, might make X million many millions of dollars in revenue in New Zealand, but pay zero tax as an example. Yeah,
1: Yeah. absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, no question. And this was going to be one of the reasons why you know it's it's you know we don't need to worry about it now, but the CGT was always going to have a problem as well because um, CGT you know so much of the value in these companies shifted into intangibles. Well, what are the intangibles worth? Um, Fortunately. Winston killed that for us.
0: <laughs> so then do you get to the situation where you might see governments, I guess we're diverting a bit here, but you might see governments taxing revenue as opposed to taxing profitability, or how, how will that work? Because well, yeah, I, I, I guess Facebook in that situation is just taking the money from New Zealand and out of New Zealand, as an example.
1: Yeah, and, and it, it actually, I mean, there are some very big implications. And this, see, this is one of the... There some very big implications of the shift because while this, all this value has moved... What hasn't caught up are the accounting standards, right. and what the accounting standards essentially tell you about the treatment of intangibles is, and without boring everybody on this podcast no, no, this to, is good. to death <laughs> with the accounting standards, what they can tell you is accounting standards essentially uh, tell you there are three ways to treat intangibles. Either, number one, they're completely off balance sheet, as in they literally don't even make the balance sheet at all. Yeah, number and that,
0: that would be something like Coca-Cola carrying no value for its brand on the balance yeah, sheet. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly, something along those lines. Uh, number two, they go on under goodwill and goodwill obviously is the price between what the market says the business is worth and essentially it's fixed assets and cash, the difference being the goodwill essentially in the business. And but it only
0: appear on the balance sheet as goodwill if it's a takeover.
1: Yeah, exactly, yeah. right, and so what you end up with is a scenario where um, You've got this big sort of rubric, this term, goodwill, and you just sweep a whole lot of value in there and because you don't know what's inside it, right? It's, mm. uh, and then the third place, a very occasion you find intangible assets is that they go on as cost. Now, the problem with cost is that unlike tangible assets... So There's the cost of the, the intangible asset. The cost of the intangible yeah. asset, right? Yeah. The, the cost of... unlike With, with a tangible asset... a fixed physical asset there's typically a correlation between the the inputs and the value of the of the product itself so the mug that i'm holding here for example um you know there's a relationship between the the uh, materials that went into this and the labor etc and it's value this mug is never going to be worth a billion dollars right um, the But with intangibles, that, there's very little correlation between cost and value because you can have actually very little inputs into something that ends up being worth a huge sum of money. So the, the classic case I always give is Instagram. So Instagram, on the day it was purchased uh, by Facebook, had 12 staff, basically no revenue. Mm. Um, it had essentially no fixed assets, a couple of laptops and things. Instagram $500 million or something, wasn't it? A billion dollars. A billion dollars, sorry, right? yeah. But, but here's the real kicker. There was only 4,500 lines of code mm. in Instagram, right, in software code. To give, you an, to give you a point of comparison, the average new car today contains 110 million lines of code. So there were, the inputs to Instagram were extraordinarily small, but its value was a billion dollars, mm-hmm. right? So what this tells you, if we step back a second, what's the treatment of intangible assets? Well, they're either off-balance sheet, they're un, un, on under goodwill, in which case they tend to get lost, or they're on at cost, and cost is massively uh, inaccurate as a measure of intangible asset value. So th- what that essentially all adds up to is it wasn't a problem when intangibles were 17% of company value because you could kind of get away with it. But at 87, 90% of all of the value is misrepresented on the balance sheet. Mm. That creates hugely distortionary effects in how we analyse and understand company value today. And that, is, that has a whole lot of knock-on implications because company accounts drive company reporting. Right? So the accounts and IFRS and GAAP drive, the you know, accounting standards of interest and gap drive company accounts. Company accounts drive company reporting. Company reporting in turn drives three key things. It drives management behavior, it drives regulation, and it drives capital flows. And all of those things are being distorted by the fact that the intangibles which are where all the real value is are not accurately reflected in their company accounts. And in fact, there's a, there's a very interesting professor at New York Stern University. He's a professor of finance and accounting. His name is Professor Baruch Lev. And he's written this, and his entire area of practice is around intangible assets. And he talks about the fact that in modern accounting, what we call modern accounting, is actually 19th century industrial age accounting. It was designed for a time when you made physical objects and, uh, and you, you shipped physical things around the world and your inventory and stock and a whole bunch of other things that you worried about. And he said that that is simply not relevant for many companies today. And he wrote a very interesting article in Harvard Business Review, which he talked about the fact that if you look at most modern digital companies, uh, you know, in this part of the world, the Zeros, the Atlassians, et cetera, um, you know, offshore, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Intel, Amazon, etc., their accounts tell you virtually nothing about their performance.
0: Uh, so by the account, you mean the balance sheet? Yeah, the balance yeah, sheet. The,
1: the, 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 the Standard effort and gap. Yeah. And um he wrote another interesting book for those who are really who are geeks like me in this regard or are interested in this kind of accounting and economic theory, uh called The End of Accounting. Yeah. And in which he basically outlines that the conventional accounting rules are massively distorting how we view companies and that in turn distorts. As I said, management behavior regulation and um, capital flows. So for me, right, so that was a very long way of answering the <laughs> <your> question. <laughs>
0: That's good. If I'm looking at a company and I'm looking at its financial statements, I don't take any consideration at all into the balance sheet. I'll, I'll look. I I'll look at the balance sheet to see if they're going to be solvent in the next year, pretty much. Mm-hmm. But in terms of valuing the company, I'll look primarily at what the company is producing or yep. what I think they can produce. Yeah, yeah, and how. Ha- how, if, if any, has the valuation of intangible assets changed? I mean, off, off balance sheet valuation. Yeah, like, is, absolutely. Is, is, it, is, it, is it different to tangible assets? Or yeah, how, how, do you, how do you think about that? And so
1: this too is really interesting, because sometimes people say that, say, okay, well, okay, I understand. I get it that it's a problem on the balance sheet, but we only really look towards the p mm-hmm. So maybe the PL will save us. Well, and I'd love to claim this as my example, but it's actually from Baroque Lev. Um, he says, look, imagine two companies. One is uh, company A and company B. Both companies start out with $10 million in cash, and they both, st- they both have an objective of being able to uh, manufacture product X. And company A makes a decision that it's going to take its $10 million and spend it on R&D. And the, R- the, out- the outcome of R&D are intangible assets. It's going to generate intangible assets, and those intangible assets are going to enable it to manufacture product X. Company B takes a different approach. It says, "I'm going to take my $10 million and I'm going to go and buy intangible assets, or I might buy a company that owns intangible assets um, uh, that and will enable me to make manufacture product X." Right? Because in both cases, they're essentially creating something new that enables them to create product or manufacture product X. They both end in the same place, right? Mm-hmm. Both of them have uh, taken $10 million, it's gone, and they now can both manufacture product X. But if you think about it from a P&L perspective, company A's perspective, who did the R&D, that will typically show up as an expense in the P&L, yep. and that depresses earnings. In company B's case, that's going to show up as an intangible asset in this case, it will actually show up more likely as either goodwill or as mm. an actual intangible asset on the balance sheet. And that, and that looks like the company is more valuable, right? Mm. So you, you, between those two companies, they're identical. They both spent the same amount of money, they both achieved the same effect, but one looks like it's got depressed earnings, one looks like it has a healthier balance sheet. Now, that writ large across the economy is actually a massive problem because clearly, straight away, you can see what happens. Well, it rewards companies to go out and buy other companies, for example. And it punishes companies that, for example, might want to do R&D. Yeah. Uh, and so that's why if you talk to very large companies, for example, the United States, they go out on buying sprees because it makes them look better, yeah. for example. There's also so a you're problem. saying it creates bad incentives and bad behaviours. Exactly. And that was my point about you know accounts drive reporting, reporting drives management behaviour, capital flows and regulatory behaviour. Um, in addition to which... You, you then start to draw on tax as well because from one of the reasons why uh, you know companies for example might choose to expend stuff is because it depresses earnings and reduces and the tax. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. So so there are the this is really problematic. Now the now before I get any irate accountants writing in to me about that. Which you may. Yeah, I do. <laughs> um, is the, the issue, it's a really vexed issue for the accounting profession because the problem, which they very correctly point out, is, well, how do you value this stuff? I going to ask that next right? year. And, and that is that is very, very challenging. And, and I can imagine all the crookedry
0: that would follow yes. from people trying to value it themselves. Yep. and the,
1: yeah, and for a while, in fact, there was a period in, uh, until the 1990s where, for example, you were allowed to do some fairly odd things like, you know, for example, put intangible assets on the balance sheet and, um, <clears throat> like, mastheads. People put, bought newspapers, put mastheads on the balance sheet, revalued them up and did all sorts of, you know, quackery. The And I can see why the, uh, the accountants have taken the position they have. The problem that they've got is that it... You could, again, you could get away with that. You could get away with essentially saying we're not going to address the issue of intangible assets when it was such a small portion of the economy and we were still flying things around and and it was still really about the physical stuff. But today, when it's so dominant and so much economic value is dependent upon it, we can no longer ignore the question of what is the value of intangible assets? And my answer to the accountants when they say this, well, we don't know how to value it, is to say, if you went back... 150 years, we didn't know how to value a lot of things, right? We didn't know any of the multiples and ratios we take for, uh, for granted today. P ratios, earnings per share, a whole lot of other ratios that today we just know. We should look to Could you get the value in a lot of cases, people
0: do that anyway through the market cap, if that Uh, makes sense? So you you, might have the tangible assets of a $1 million, but the market cap might be $10 million, and that's the valuation of the...
1: That's the really blunt method, right? And you can get to it that way, Um, but the issue is more about uh, where you don't have, for example, an easily accessible market cap or you don't have an easily accessible uh, enterprise value if it's a private company, that kind of thing. You've got more challenges, you've also got challenges if you're dealing with a specific asset, like what's my data worth yeah right. so but I guess the point that I make in, in my rebuttal, so I, I get why the accountants are look at this with trepidation, but at the same time, my challenge my challenge to them is the following: We solved this problem for many other things we thought were difficult to value and this is no different. I mean if we went back to 1500 with the essentially the invention of the joint stock company people would have told me you can't value a stock in a company like yeah. that's impossible. Well now we do it every day, right? Yeah. Uh, so and we do it with surprising accuracy and without an issue and the same thing is going to happen with intangibles except it's going to happen faster. so you
0: see it as a a, cha- a change that will be forced that yeah. would happen
1: it, it's yeah. it's like it's like two uh tectonic plates grinding up against one another the you on the one hand you have the accounting standards and they're remaining fixed in place essentially at the moment and on the other you have the economy which is rapidly grinding away from it that is Friction between the two can only last too long before there's going to mm. be a slip, and um, and you know, it, it, you can't, it can't go on forever. Something that can't go on forever won't.
0: Yeah. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So when I look around at a, a, a lot of companies, and some of them might have large intangible asset valu- valuations, and yeah. I guess where I'm leading to is. I guess just like a tangible asset, an intangible asset can be overvalued as well, can't it?
1: Oh, no question. And that's one of the big issues, is that we've gotten really good at valuing tangible assets. Um, you and I are sitting at a table. You know, If we took both had a guess at what this table's value was, we're not gonna get it wrong by an order of magnitude. right? Yeah. Um, and if we picked out a random piece of real estate around here or a car, we'd also both be more or less correct. So we got really good at valuing tangible assets, what we're not great at valuing right now is intangible assets. And so you end up with a much, much bigger separation between bid and offer. And that is a real big problem. If you go
0: back to the Instagram example before, I remember people saying that Facebook were insane yeah. to be buying Instagram for a billion dollars. And I think it's, it's one of the – it's in the top few best acquisitions in history.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the research shows that Facebook made at least seven times as money on Instagram – and, in fact, if, if Instagram was separated out... I would say out, at least, yeah. Yeah. Well, if Insta- they, they theorized that if Instagram was separated out as its own business unit, it would be worth about $100 billion. Yeah. So, so there's no question Zuckerberg... Because sometimes people say, when I give the example of Instagram, Zuckerberg's an idiot. He overpaid. Zuckerberg did not. I mean, he's many things. He looks like data off Star Trek. Uh, <laughs> but he didn't overpay for Instagram. Uh, if anything, he got a fantastic deal. Yeah. Um, and, well, you know, I remind you 12 staff, no assets or no fixed assets, um, no revenue, and four and a half thousand lines of code, and worth a billion dollars. Same day, the example I always give, it was worth the same as Main Freight, which mm. had, you know, 38 years, I think it was two billion or three billion dollars in revenue, um, you know, a lot of staff, um, and, you know, Netcons, uh, you know, a lot of stuff. A company like
0: Mainfreight is never going to have the scalability that exactly. Instagram... Yeah, right, sorry to interrupt Paul speaking there. What he was saying was was really, really interesting. It was about here in the recording where we experienced a sudden and unexpected technical difficulty. Um, and what I was originally going to do was I was originally going to edit the content out and make it seamless like I always do and... and <laughs> so, you wouldn't think there was any issues, but I listened back to it, and what Paul was saying on both sides of the of the technical difficulty was quite interesting so what i decided to leave it in there. apologies for the for the hiccup um and what we'll do is we'll we'll pick up the conversation again with Paul talking about Instagram and main freight so just off air then, paul, you're comparing instagram for example to main freight
1: yeah so i Main Freight, you know, Instagram on the day it sold is worth a billion dollars, uh, and it's got twelve staff, basically zero fixed assets, uh, no revenue, uh, and it had four and a half thousand lines of code. Uh, main Freight on the same day um, is worth approximately a um, billion dollars. It has, I think, from memory, uh, two billion dollars in assets, a billion dollars in revenue, six thousand eight hundred staff, and been around for thirty-eight years. Yeah, and and yet the two are worth the same, and. You either have to argue that, um, again, that Zuckerberg made some a horrific mistake and uh, Instagram was not worth that, which the research clearly shows is not the case. Or, or retrospectively, it's definitely not the case. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or alternatively, accept that there's something else going on that doesn't fully explain is not fully explained by the company accounts, mm. and, and it is that is actually what is really happening. Is that there is tremendous value in these intangible assets, but they're off balance sheet. They're frequently not captured correctly inside the P and L, and therefore the effect is there. They're like the dark matter of the universe, mm. right? That that's really what's happening. Most of the most of the mass we see, we can't see, but it's there and it affects everything.
0: So, Main Freight, by the way, is a wonderful company. Um, but that's, I guess, that's. The issue that some people will have is, say, I'm just theorising here, if you were looking at Instagram at the time with a $1 billion valuation, there would have been very few people in the world that would have been prepared to pay it. Mm-hmm. Someone like Zuckerberg and Facebook, for example, could see the value. Yeah. But your everyday person might have, and probably myself as well at the time, would have a, a better shot at valuing main freight, yes. for example. Yeah, a-
1: absolutely. And that's the thing. That's one of the things about intangible assets, that people... Really struggle to wrap their head around is that they can be worth different things to different people. Yeah, and that is very different again than a fixed asset, right? So a fixed asset has is they most of the fixed assets operate within um, more liquid markets, and therefore you get reasonably efficient price setting. Um, Because most
0: people would agree that Mainframe at the time was worth a billion.
1: Yeah, exactly right. Whereas intangible assets have this unique property, right, that they're infinitely scalable. The knock-on consequence of something being infinitely scalable is that it will typically be worth the most to somebody who's capable of scaling it infinitely. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right? So, um, and what that means, therefore, is that it's going to be worth different things to different people because those who are capable of scaling it will pay more than those who are not capable of scaling yeah. it. So on the day Instagram was sold, it was probably worth nothing to you or I other than... we couldn't, we couldn't, we couldn't it. scale it. We couldn't scale it. Other than our ability to resell it to... To Zuckerberg, yeah. right? Or somebody like Zuckerberg, right? Probably the next biggest contender was Google. So um, there's probably five or six buyers for that in the whole world. Correct. Yeah. But to those five or six people, it was worth a lot of money, yeah. right? <clears throat> and that's the key point, that people, that and again, a cost-based accounting, which basically all accounting really ultimately boils down to cost-based, simply does not capture it because it can't deal with a world in which you can take an asset and one day it's worth $0 and three months later it's worth a billion. Yeah. But that's what's going on because there's no way you can take main freight and there's no there's no strategy or action plan in the world there's no capital plan. There's nothing that takes main freight from one, from one day it's worth a billion and three months later it's worth um, a thousand times that amount. Yeah. It's not possible. But
0: you would agree that main freight would be worth a billion to more people?
1: Yes. Yeah. So main freight, main freight is... We're not picking on main freight, no, by no, the way. No, no, absolutely. It's just an example. Main freight <laughs> is more accessible to yeah. more people because it's basically it's got a financial instrument, it's stock that is traded in a liquid market and which you've got efficient price setting mechanisms. Right? Yeah. Um, many intangible assets don't fit that criteria yet. Yeah. And that's a key point as well, is that, that has got to change.
0: Yeah. Now I saw a stat on Netflix the other day, a company with a lot of intangible assets, as you know. Mm. It said something that the world's data is now worth more than the world's oil. Yep, as as an example. So yep. I'll be interested to hear, and I'm putting you on the spot a bit. If you yep. had any interesting stats, or any interesting stories, or anything you could say, just from your, I guess, your day to day.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So I, I gave a presentation on this exact topic uh, at a uh, chief chief information office conference recently. And a lot of people have said this. What's interesting, actually, about that quote is that it was first stated back in around, I think it's 2006. Oh, wow. Well, it might have been yeah. as early as 2003. Yeah. Right? So it takes a long time for these things to actually permeate their way into the mass consciousness. Um, data is like oil. Uh, and a couple of, uh, there's arguments for and against, right? One of the arguments against data being like oil is, or any other valuable commodity, is that its supply is essentially unlimited and inexhaustible. Yeah. And how can you have a valuable commodity where the supply is essentially unlimited or inexhaustible, right? Um, now, uh, there's also the, uh, but on the other hand, data is like oil in a couple of key regards. Um, number one, uh, Data only has potential value. Like if you have a piece of land with oil in it, it only has potential value. It doesn't mean just because it's there, like the Canadian tar sands, until you develop the technology to extract it. Well, is the oil actually that useful or not? Mm. Uh, Number two, there is a cost of extraction, right? And there's a cost of extraction of data and monetization of data. Data does not monetize itself. Yeah, it needs to be money needs to be invested into it in order to get extract the value out. The third thing. So is,
0: if I just gave you a whole lot of data. Yeah, it doesn't There's mean not anything. much you can no, do. Exactly. It. But if I gave you ten barrels of oil, maybe you could go sell it. Well, somewhere. it's
1: just like if you gave me a whole lot of land. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I either have to find somebody else to sell it to, mm. or I have to go and work it myself, and there's a cost of working it, either in labor or in capital. Right. Um, the the third issue with data is that um, you. there is risk associated with it as well in the sense of you can just like with oil you can have you know deep water horizon the whole thing can blow up Uh, if you're not careful about how you go through your data monetization activities you can easily blow things up and you can end up with really severe blowback and consequences on you. Uh, I think
0: that's becoming more prevalent these days as people start to become aware of I guess Facebook has put it in the news, haven't they, about yeah. privacy and things yeah, like that, exactly, right? So, and and people are doing, facts, that yeah, one, it, yeah.
1: exactly. Yeah. People are very concerned about the way that their data is being treated and managed. And there are some companies out there who are you know who are not doing a good job of managing that stuff or monetizing it. So it is like it is and it is like oil. Um, and my, my, I think my preference is to say it probably is more like oil than it's not, but you do definitely have to recognise that it doesn't monetize itself. There is a cost of monetisation and there is risk-associated monetisation. And in that respect, data behaves like any other asset. If I give you an asset and I want to generate an income stream from it, I have to invest into it and that investment is going to be in the three fundamental investment, any three fundamental investments, risk, resources and time. And yep. and I need to, therefore, do an analysis. And we do a lot of this work for clients, for example. They'll come along and say, we've got all this data. And we'll say, okay, well, the first thing we need to understand is what is its potential value? Then what is the cost of monetization? And what are the risks associated with that monetization? How long it's going to take you? And then, then you can run a return on investment. Mm. And, and that would be identical if I I'd said to you, here's a piece of land. Yep. I think there's some oil under it. The questions that you would logically ask are, is, how much oil, what's it gonna be worth by the time I extract it? How much is it gonna cost me to extract? How long is it gonna cost me to extract it? What are the risks associated with it? Is there a positive ROI? It's absolutely no different.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you have any other sort of good stories and, and things <laughs> like that, any, any good quotes from the,
1: <laughs> well, from I, the intangible world? You know, I'll, I'll give you an example um, of a piece of work we did because to me it really sums up exactly what's going on here. Uh, so we were working with a with a company um, that was uh, the owner was selling the business after thirty years of ownership and they had been there, the investment bank was the investment bank was managing the transaction and the investment bank managing the transaction did the classic i banking thing. Uh, looked at what the company was doing, took its EBITDA, multiplied it by uh, an industry standard multiplier, which is surprising how often it's between four and six, um, and uh, you know multiplied it through and said that's what you're going to get. And we were asked to get involved in this and looked at what they were doing and went, hold on, the most valuable asset in this business in case was and in this particular case was its data, right? But that data was off balance sheet and it wasn't being talked about or discussed in the sales process at all. Um, because as far as the investment bank was concerned and the founder was concerned, you know, it wasn't wasn't there. It didn't exist. But it was. It it, it absolutely did. So we ended up taking over that sales process and we did two things very differently. Uh, number one, we really we really talked about the data and why that data was important. Number two, we targeted companies who wanted to buy data, not who wanted to buy. So in not the same the
0: way as Facebook. Targeted to buy
1: Instagram. Yeah, exactly, yeah. right. Yeah. And the reason was really simple: that the people who wanted data had a much bigger checkbook, right? Mm. So why, you know, you why do you rob? What is the, why did John Deller just say rob banks? Because that's where the money is. So why did you target those companies? Because that's where the money was, right? And so, long story short, we ended up selling this business for thirty-two times EBITDA. Oh, so like the owners get an eight hundred percent increase on in what they were expecting to get out of that, and. And it was all about the fact of identifying these valuable intangible assets that nobody th- realized were there and did have value and extracting that value out of it. And sometimes clients say to us, oh, look, you know, what you guys do is you find Rembrandts in the attic. Mm. And, and that's kind of what we like to think about what we do is that we go into companies and we find value there where other people haven't necessarily seen it. The other side of that equation is also that there's also tremendous risk. Um, and, And that, you know, there's another whole discussion there that you can unpack around that most companies aren't managing the risk to these intangible assets at all. That's not a one-off result. I mean, and that's when you'd see like a goodwill write down, for example. Uh, All sorts of things. I mean, you know, we were dealing with a company the other day that was spending one and a half million dollars a month building its brand for an expansion into the United States, and and we sat down with them and said, "Well, is this your brand?" We showed them their brand, and they said, "Yeah, that's our brand." We said, "Well, that's actually owned by your competitor in the United States." Yeah. So you've spent thirty-six million dollars. You've spent. $1.5 $1.5 million for the last 24 months, $36 million building a brand you don't actually own. Yeah, Because they had received bad advice around their trademarks. Yeah. And so these guys have literally set fire to $36 million uh, and they've got no value out of it. And that's an intangible asset risk. And it's a real problem because most companies don't deal with it at all.
0: Yeah, now obviously we used that quote at the start from 1975 to, to today there's been tremendous change that we spoke about. Yep. Where do you see things heading, maybe not necessarily over the next 40 years, but in, in the future? Not just in, in tangible assets, but in, in, in general in that field.
1: Well, obviously, we can't top out at 100, right? We we, we Intangible assets can't be 100% of the economy because we still need to eat, we still need to consume, we're still going to have... For the moment, I suspect physical bodies that we have to move around, and yeah. we're not going to we're not going to download ourselves quite yet, right? Yeah. And even when we do, something's still got to move the bits and the bytes around. For the moment, so there's always going to be a portion of the economy that is tangibly based, no question. However, what I think you're going to see is a, that's going to get continually squeezed down more and more and more as as people recognise that it's all the intangible assets that enable you to leverage in the old term of the word lever, uh, those those tangible assets into value, right? You can't extract value from tangible assets without the intangibles. If you've got a bunch of oil sitting under your land, you can't get that out without intangible assets. If you've got a bunch of data, you can't get that out without intangible assets either. So I think what you're gonna see is you're gonna see the economy will still have these very visible tangible assets, big buildings and trucks and plants and cars and so forth. But the value will continue to accrete to and accumulate in the intangibles that enable you to extract the value from those tangible assets. yeah, and and that is written into the code that is a one way arrow. It is not a trend that is unlike, that is likely to unwind itself and sort of swing back like a pendulum. The economy is only going to get more focus on digital innovation, new technology, new business models, and all of that stuff is intangible assets. And so you're going to just see a greater and greater concentration on intangibles.
0: Do you think it's been the intangibles that are causing the disruption we're seeing at the moment worldwide? Oh, no question.
1: It's because I mean, think Uber, for example. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, Uber couldn't do, Uber could not do what it's done 20 years ago. I couldn't yeah. do this
0: podcast. No, years, no, but, yeah. absolutely
1: right. It's, it's simply impossible. So, so there's no question. Disruption, uh, you know, is the the handmaiden of intangible assets. Right? It, it absolutely the two go hand in hand. There's, those two things are intimately related to one another. Anytime you hear somebody talking about barriers to entry, competitive advantage, unfair advantage, you know, Buffett's moats, mm. intrinsic value, competitive edge, innovation disruption, R&D, all of those things are fundamentally intangible assets.
0: Yep. A, whole lot. a lot of people actually misunderstand that about Warren Buffett. They think he focuses on the tangible assets, but for a long time, oh, yeah. he's yeah. been all about buying uh, businesses with absolutely. He low capital about requirements. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. No question. Um, so Paul, we're talking off air about macro trends.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I know that's something that a lot of listeners will be really interested to hear your views on. So
1: yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I think the the first thing is, uh, as as we discussed, there there is this tremendous macro trend towards an ever increasing concentration of intangible asset value, and that's going to have uh, a number of different effects. I think first of all, conventional stock picking is going to become Tougher and tougher and tougher to do solely on the basis of pure financial information, yeah right um, and I think we're already seeing that I mean most I basically yep. most funds now are either you're having to get really active or they're getting passive and um, and there's no place in the middle anymore, so, right so you either have a secret source as a fund manager. Uh, and I'd say that secret source increasingly has to be in your understanding of intangible assets, because that's where all the value is. We have to get really, really passive and your costs, etc., need to collapse. Um, so I think that's one um, significant implication. I think number two is that management teams and boards need to wrap their heads around what intangible assets are. Because when, you know, as a director, you have a fiduciary obligation to manage all with the emphasis on all assets under your assured stewardship and control generate a return on those assets and ensure that they're not exposed to undue risk right well what I can tell you is that most boards and are focused on fixed assets yep. and uh, and they spend an inordinate amount of time looking at other uh, fixed asset issues etc and they don't really look at the bigger, holistic picture of intangible assets or they divide it up in little little bite-sized chunks so like a lot of boards are, you know petrified about cyber but they don't necessarily worry about brand risk or they're worried about brand risk but they're not thinking about confidential information loss or they'll think about confidential information loss but they're not thinking about open source code uh, utilization now all of those things actually live under the bigger umbrella topic of intangible asset risk so I think that you're going to need to see a change in behavior from management teams and boards to understand what intangible assets are and how they drive company performance. And that's going to be uh, driven, needs to be driven by a realization that what my accounts tell me about how the company is performing is not necessarily accurate. Yeah. So I I think that's a a key thing. I think there's also a big potentially uh, impact on capital providers and, in particular, banks. Because the banks are regulated uh, through Basel, Basel IV, basically. Um, And Basel IV is devolved out of the accounting standards. And in our part of the world, Basel IV devolves down into APRA, the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority. And in essence, what APRA tells you or tells the banks is, for example, the risk weighting on property is typically 4%. So real estate and so forth, typically 4%. Risk weighting on intangible assets is typically 100%. Yeah. So... Banks basically get rewarded 25 to 1 every time they hit the property buzzer. Uh, and not surprisingly, they hit the property buzzer all the time. Yeah. And and that's why in New Zealand, for example, I think the figure is 85% of all business lending is secured against the family home. Uh, and so we've had this mass concentration of capital flowing into non-productive Fixed assets, namely real oh, estate. Oh, don't get
0: me started on this. And,
1: and very little capital flowing into the productive portion of the economy, which is the inherently more leverageable portion of the economy as well, which is all the intangible assets. Mm. So you you basically got a situation where you're constantly doubling down on fixed non-productive non-scalable assets at the expense of non-fixed scalable leverageable intangible assets productive assets Yeah exactly yeah. and that's hugely problematic for for the economy So Uh, you you see that less in the united states for example because there they have a much deeper and more sophisticated um uh, in particular debt market but the banks are much more um, imaginative that has its consequences as we saw in the GFC when you get really imaginative banks um, <laughs> but you know that's that's another trend and you know there's you know you look at these big macro trends you can see how it just radiates out into the economy we were talking about tax before the the you know the tax authorities are going to have to wrap their heads around the fact that most multinational businesses are now inherently flexible can move their operations around and certainly their intangible assets more or less at will. Yeah, And that has huge implications for how you collect tax, how you levy tax, how you manage tax, all of those kind of things.
0: So it almost has to be a, a global solution because if one place says we're going to tax you and you're saying they can easily move it, oh, then they'll move it somewhere else.
1: Yeah, well, tax authorities... I mean, here's the the, you know, the dirty secret of tax. Tax authorities always treat foreigners better than they treat domestic. They, they, by definition... You yeah, don't get me by GST, <laughs> overseas and, and everything like that. Right, yeah. They have yeah. to because the foreigners, by definition, have... An option, right? yeah. They can go somewhere else, whereas uh, you and I, tax surfs, we can't. Yeah, uh, we're stuck here. We're tied to the land. Yeah. Um. So that's problematic. So all everywhere you look on this, it is there's a fundamental change, and it radiate. It's like dropping a massive boulder into the middle of a pond. The ripples spread out everywhere throughout the economy. Once you understand that intangibles, uh, you know, there's this massive unseen portion of the iceberg that nobody's been talking about.
0: Yeah, and I guess for you, that is, that, is that services that your company provides? Tell us a bit more about what you guys do.
1: Yep, so what we do is actually really simple. So we're intangible asset specialists, so we say, okay, we, we, don't, we deal with all of those assets you can't drop on your foot um, inside the business. So you know, the data, the content, the brands, the code, the trade secrets, confidential information, regulatory approvals, all of that stuff. And what we do is we either work with the company itself or the investors, and we, we do four very simple things. So number one, what are your intangible assets? Or what is the company's intangible assets? And oftentimes we're the first person who's asked that question. Yeah. A lot of the time the company's aware intuitively that they have value there, but they cannot tell you what that actually is, what it's constituted of. So the first thing is understanding what intangible assets that you have. And it's just be a bit like, you know, if you had a great-great uncle who died and you took over his property, the first thing you do is you go and do an audit or a stock tag of what mm. the hell he actually had. Uh, secondly the second question we ask is what are the risks to those assets because those risks will limit or reduce value so we want to deal with those risks so for example if you've got a great brand we want to ensure that it's adequately protected and managed properly etc you have got a whole lot of data okay are you at risk when you're collecting this data or violating a whole lot of consumer privacy Mm. obligations and and so on and so on there's there's lots of risks associated with intangible assets so you're almost
0: like the not handymen, but, but generalists in terms of the intangible. So you'll deal with any sort of the intangible yeah. problems or
1: things that need to be yeah, done so for your clients. Exactly. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So we're like a man- charge a fee. Precisely. We're, assets, we're a management yeah. consulting company that specializes in intangible assets. Um, the third thing we then do is a lot of valuation work. So the, once you've understood what your assets are and you understand what the risks to them are, then the next question that you go to is what are they worth? Yep. And so we'll do a lot of valuation work with intang- of trying to figure out what the intangible assets are worth, what the company is worth in light of its intangible assets because the conventional way of valuing companies often leads them, especially intangible asset-rich companies, often suppresses their value. Yeah, Conventional valuations will suppress their value. Um, so we do a lot of work about valuing companies and valuing discrete intangible assets. So people come to us and say, how much is my patent worth?
0: And then I guess also I assume you're if they're valuing it for sale, then you might be finding the suitable buyer that, yep, exactly. that it's worth that much too. And that's yep. the final
1: step. You've, you've, you've identified the asset, you've figured out what the risks are, and you've reduced those risks or mitigated them or controlled for them. Third point, what is the asset worth or what's my company worth in light of those intangible assets? And then the fourth and final step is now how do I unlock value in those assets? And yep. that's coming back to that example to go before the company where we did, achieved a 32 times exit, was it followed that process exactly. Hey, you've got valuable intangible assets, even if they're off balance sheet, in this case data. We dealt with a series of risks around that data, make sure we could actually trade it and that it was not an issue. Number three, we valued it and made it clear what the value of those intangible assets were, made it explicit to the buyers. And then number four, unlocking the value, finding out who the likely buyers were, running a sales process, ultimately selling it, 32 times not four times X yeah. yeah and and it's
0: obviously a great result for your client yeah absolutely yeah. and a good result for the company buying it
1: oh no question yeah they're they're absolutely wrapped with it right? yeah. yeah
0: so where, where would people go to find out a bit more about you
1: uh, real simple uh, everedgeglobal, global it's the word ever the word edge the word globalcom fantastic cool
0: right that's about where the recording ended just before I, I finish off thanks very much. To Paul for coming on the podcast. For me personally, the the best thing about doing this podcast is when I get to interview guests. And and none of none of the people on the podcast get paid to be on the podcast. So it's essentially people giving up their free time or, or taking time out of their day. Or when they could be, you know, Paul could be out and valuing intangible assets, for example. But instead, he's sitting there talking to me on on the podcast. So always really appreciate when we when we get guests and especially guests of Paul's caliber on the podcast so thanks very much for for listening in, into the podcast as a reminder that nothing that we said today should be considered financial advice if all the information was general by nature if you're looking to find out more go to www.stopmarketmovers.co.nz or find us and give it a like by searching on facebook or tweet to us on twitter make sure also to share it with your friends If you want to email me, it is jeremy at stockmarketmovers.co.nz. Feel free to send across any questions that you might have. Once again, my name is Jeremy Medlin, and this has been episode 52 of the Stock Market Movers podcast for Friday, the 9th of August, 2019. We'll see you all again next week.